0: Please remain standing for today's scripture reading found from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, for the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved.
1: It's so easy once you turn on the microphone. Isn't it great that we scripted that? Once you turn on the microphone, that everybody can hear clearly. Without awkwardness, without danger, you can proceed to your destination. Well, whether you're, you're talking about driving without being alert and attentive, whether you're thinking about a conversation, a sermon without that kind of amplification, whether you're talking about your life, that lack of clarity, that lack of attentiveness and alertness can be stultifying. Think about your life in different ways. How often do we feel as, as Christians, as men and women named by Jesus Christ, that we are sort of plodding along. One day looks like the other until suddenly a crisis pops up. Uh, There's a relationship that you didn't know had gone sour, but suddenly something boils over. Or suddenly you realize that what has been a simmering uh, set of decisions has become a sin pattern and maybe an addiction. And suddenly something jolts that to your attention. Suddenly you realize that uh, you don't find joy, you don't find delight in the basic rhythms of the Christian life and being with God and with His people. And, and you're suddenly jolted into awareness of that. It's so easily to operate in that kind of mode where you're not alert to what's going on and where you're surprised, you're startled by the occasional crisis or choke point. Kate Sonderegger says this. She says, To believe in Almighty God is to lift up one's head. To see this world and to see beyond it too, it's to trust that there is more. More riches in a text that meets the eye, more grace in life in bread and wine and oil than anyone glimpses there. More distinction in human reason than biology can teach us. More dignity to all creatures than economic striving can show us. More weight to our concepts and ideals and facts than our weary age can hope for. More is the name of Christian dignity. And as we turn to Ephesians in these next weeks, roughly 15 weeks this fall, leading up to Advent, it's that idea of more that we're going to explore It's that notion of being increasingly alerted to what we can go so dull about, what we can so easily be unaware of. And Ephesians, as Damien mentioned earlier, is about, uh, as Ben mentioned earlier, is about opening our eyes, enlightening us, deepening our perception and our awareness. And so we're referring to the series by the title, In Light of More. What does it mean? to have illumination or enlightenment, not to our own powers, not to our own strength as the modern enlightenment celebrated and commended, but in light of God's presence, of God's power, that God is more thickly present as we've already sung in delight about here and now in the daily grind, in the ongoing plod, one foot in front of the other. That God is more intimate, more close, more involved, more purposeful than we dare imagine. And that in becoming alert to that, in realizing with greater clarity what's going on around us, what's gone long before us and will surely come long after us, God's presence in the work of His gospel through Jesus and the Spirit, that that gives clarity and direction and resolve and boldness so that we can live lives of maturity and wholeness, so that we can walk in the right direction. That's just it. Once I flip on those lights, I suddenly realize that I can see the road before me with remarkable clarity. And there's a great peace that comes with that. There's a great comfort knowing the way in which I'm to drive, the way in which I'm to go. And so what we expect to find as we as a people immerse ourselves in Ephesians is that there's a remarkable boldness and peace, a comfort and a power as we're increasingly alert to God's thick presence and God's remarkably life-giving power in our midst. And so with that in mind, we want to look at these first 14 verses from Ephesians 1 as something of an introduction, laying out some basics about the letter as a whole, and then one early theme that gets developed and we ought to explore together. First, we want to look at how verses 1 and 2 introduce Ephesians as a whole. We ought to note, first of all, who it's from and who it's to. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2 say this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's from Paul, not just Paul, not just a thinker and a writer and a communicator, but an apostle, one who's sent by Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And it's to the saints. Now we can easily think, centuries down the road, and a lot of change in in linguistics, we can think that saints are the elite. These are the all-star team. These are the Navy SEALs. Uh, These are the cream of the crop. But as you look around the New Testament, what you find is that all Christians are saints. All Christians are saints. The same Paul will write to the Corinthian church. They are messed up in every which way. They can't get along. They don't follow God's ways. They aren't responsible for each other when they don't follow God's ways. They bicker and fight, and they bring it even into the Lord's house of worship and yet they're saints. They're addressed as holy ones in Jesus Christ. That's what we find here as well, that this is addressed to all Christian men and women, to those who are holy, to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And that means this letter's to you. This is one of the the four prison epistles that Paul wrote during a time where for a a lengthy season he was imprisoned, and he wrote to different churches, and this is the one that right off the bat was passed along. Uh, In fact, there's conversation about whether it was intentionally directed first to Ephesus, or it was intentionally spread more widely and only later identified pretty closely with that one church. In any event, and that's way beyond what we need to talk about, it's crucial to catch that this was immediately viewed as the most widely significant of all Paul's letters. It spread fast and far because it addresses all Christian men and women, from one apostle of Jesus Christ to all those who are holy and faithful in Jesus Christ. And there's the same thing we've got to observe about that, why this is so applicable. In the first century, and why this might be so pertinent to you today. There's something we don't find in verse 1 or in the rest of the letter. Of all of Paul's writings, in fact, of all the letters of the entire New Testament, this is the one letter where there is no fire that needs to be put out. This is the only occasion where Paul can write without addressing a crisis. This is where he's dealing with ongoing health and nutrition. He is not dealing with an infusion or an intervention. This is about the annual checkup. This is not about the ER visit. This is what Paul gets to say when he doesn't have to be dominated by the tyranny of the urgent, when he can talk about gospel maturity, when he can talk about Christian wholeness, when he can talk with balance and proportion, because He is not writing to a people where there's a scandal, where there's a crisis, where there's a controversy, where there's some remarkable problem that's got to have the preponderance of his attention. Yet we ought to be aware, this letter does either get first directed to or quickly identified with the church in Ephesus, and it's a a church close to Paul's heart, and it's a church that apparently doesn't have a controversy at this time. And yet, we, we read on. Paul later writes to Timothy, who's going to pastor in Ephesus. And we learn in First Timothy that there will, in fact, be controversy that has to be addressed in that church. And eventually, we see a letter to the church in Ephesus appearing amongst those seven in Revelation 2 and 3. And there, amidst thankfulness and praise for good things, there's an awareness that this church is struggling that they've forgotten their first love. It's a reminder that while Ephesians addresses wholeness and balance and what God wants for every Christian man, woman, and child, crisis can come. Crisis can always come. Controversy can always lie in the future. And we do well not to think that it might not enter our house, our congregation. And so... We can look at the basics, the balanced account of the Christian life here, mindful that it's by paying attention to these key essentials of the Christian way that we'll find that we are drawn together, that we are kept together, and that we are thus kept close to God. Third thing we ought to note about what verses 1 and 2 say for us, introducing the epistle. Verse 2 gives us the theme. It's really easy to read past this like it's just formality. It's sort of a a literary garnish. It's on the plate, but you're not supposed to eat it. You're not supposed to make much of it. But verse 2 is really significant. Paul, having introduced himself and addressed us, says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a few things we ought to observe there. Notice, first of all, Paul doesn't bring anything of his own. He wishes well for them. He wants them to flourish and to benefit. But where is it from? It's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't bring mere opinion, he doesn't bring simple personal charisma dude's in prison and he's got quite a story to tell, but that's not the focus of it either. He'll talk about that a bit obliquely in chapter 3, alluding to where he is and from what situation he writes, what his witness is, what his testimony is. But that's not the main thing he brings. He brings a blessing from God. There's something stark in that. We We need wisdom from others. We need to hear the opinions of others and to weigh it. We need to see the witness of others. But at the end of the day, we need something deeper, don't we? At the end of the day, and maybe only a guy in prison can know this, we need the blessing of God. And so first and foremost, Paul names that as His highest concern, that we would find grace and peace, but not just any grace and peace, not just a mere gift, not just uh, sort of relational integrity with anybody, but grace and peace regarding God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll come back to this at the end of chapter 6, where in the last two verses, He brings up these two ideas again, bookending the entire epistle or letter. He'll say there in 6.23 and 24, Peace be to the brothers and to the sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And so this letter's about grace and it's about peace. Grace is an easy word. We've turned it into a name, a tattoo, a hashtag, Grace is a common word, a gift, a kindness shown to another, something that is undeserved or unexpected. As Paul uses it, it's a gift given to someone who is not the most typical recipient of such a gift. Either they don't have the track record and pedigree that would suggest they ought to have it, or they don't have the potential They don't seem the most apt person to make the most use of it. And yet, it's a gift and it's given, it's bestowed. These first three chapters of Ephesians are going to describe how we are not those who seem to deserve the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We aren't the righteous. We aren't the wise. We aren't the faithful. In fact, it will describe us as being dead and being sinners. And we're also not those who are marked by the greatest potential. We're not those who are the most apt and promising. We're not the young prospect that you sort of expect eventually to make it and to achieve. And yet God has given. God's power has acted. God has raised Christ from the dead. God has raised us from spiritual death to life. God has reunited Jews and Gentiles, making peace making one body through the cross. And God gives purpose and direction, we'll see in chapter 3, to those who are aimless and alone. In so many ways, Ephesians 1-3 celebrate the powerful grace of God, alerting us, illumining us to be aware of ways in which God is involved, past, present, and future in our lives and stories in ways that we would so easily overlook. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul addresses peace. How clarity about God's powerful presence is meant to give deep comfort and out of deep comfort, not malaise, not laziness, not comfort with the status quo, but boldness, energy, action, And so we find that chapters 4-6 to describe the kind of maturity that flows from someone who knows that a powerful God is committed to their cause. The kind of boldness that comes from a a woman or a man who knows that they have access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. It describes the kind of gospel imagination, the kind of selfless, self-sacrificial dreaming that, that marks the lives of those children and adults who know that The Almighty God is their Father, and they are His adopted children. And so chapters 4 to 6 get really concrete, describing ways in which we guard our unity and our togetherness against our temptations in virtually every sphere to splinter and to segregate, to be at odds with each other. They go deep in describing how our families are meant to be environments of love and sacrifice and thinking more highly of the other than of ourselves and being more committed to the sanctification and growth of our beloved, of our brother, of our sister, of our wife, of our husband, etc., than our own comfort. It's going to describe how we're called to live using our bodies, our resources, our money, our time, our relationships, our human capital, our networks. For the greater good, not for our own personal gain. Many of you will remember in July, Damien was preaching on a couple Sundays through John chapter 15, describing how fruitfulness in that lesson of Jesus comes from abiding. Ephesians will use similar language. It will talk about how we are called to grow up in Jesus Christ, how we're called to maturity, to wholeness, to what chapter 4 will call mature manhood or womanhood, that we we would grow up and not remain children or childish. While we're to be childlike and to depend, we are to grow up and to mature. We're to develop. And what we see is that Ephesians, more so than John 15, gives really concrete examples of what that looks like. In light of God's palpable presence and His power committed to our end, here's how you live, here's how you walk, here's how you speak, here's how you use your body, here's how you devote your money to good. It illumines how grace changes everything. You know, if you observe a train, you'll know that there are two crucial things to a train productively moving forward. You have to have a a track on which the train lies that's going to give it direction, clarity, that it's not just going haphazard, causing an accident. And you've also got to have fuel of some sort. It can vary what it is, but you've got to have something that's going to move it along and generate that kind of force and momentum. Ephesians describes both of those things. Chapters 1-3 to describe the grace of God that is the fuel of the Christian life. And it increasingly alerts us to God's palpable presence with His power that's committed to the good of His people, of His children, of His family. That's the fuel that's meant to generate your Christian walk this day and in the days to come. And Ephesians 4-6 then describe the way in which that train track runs. The way in which you are to walk. The way in which you are to go. Giving clarity and comfort by providing direction by showing us what it means to be human and what it means to be renewed in the image of God in Jesus Christ. And so when we hear Paul beginning this epistle saying grace and peace to you, it's not merely saying, hey, what's up? Or it's been a long time or best wishes. It's a very substantial, it's a very intentional description of all that he's going to talk about of the two great themes of the letter. Thirdly, let's see one illustration of God's grace that appears in these verses. Verses 3 through 14 are a remarkable passage, and we are going to skip over virtually all of it. But there is something that we can see about how our lives are more rooted in the powerful presence of God, and how the language of Predestination signals this to us in verses 3 through 14. Some of you perhaps know the story. Decades ago, uh, it was Halloween week, Sunday, October 30. The year was 1938. And the Halloween episode of the Mercury Theater of the Air radio broadcast aired The War of the Worlds, written by H.G. Wells, narrated that night on the radio by Orson Welles. And the program involved, if you've not ever encountered it, a number of news bulletins. They seemed to interrupt what was the normal broadcast, and they begin by telling of remarkable explosions on Mars. They move to tell of Martian landings in a place called Grover's Mills, New Jersey, and eventually of Martians going on to invade the whole world. Now, The program began by saying this was a fictional account. It was framed by a typical editorial introduction that should have clued listeners into the fact that this was not real life. And yet, this story continues to be told almost a century later because people went nuts. They were scared to death. People believed that Martians were invading. Martians invaded New Jersey. Martians were spreading out into cities around the world. A mass panic hit, and hysterical listeners forgot that beginning point when they took in each of those different news bulletins. I think we can experience similar spiritual panic, isn't, isn't fear such an increasingly prevalent reality in our world? Isn't anxiety and worry such an increasing temptation for all of us, some struggling with ongoing patterns of anxiety disorders, but all of us in various ways finding ourselves increasingly, not just given occasions to fear, but sometimes being encouraged to fear in the way we consume news, in the way we hear chatter from others, in the way we're addressed about matters of this life. You know, it's remarkable that in the last century, our knowledge has magnified exponentially, our technological capacities have improved so markedly, and yet, It's fascinating to observe that as psychological studies have been done, the average American teenager today marks out or tests at the anxiety levels of someone who would have been hospitalized a mere 70 years ago. That there is, at the same time as we have greater data and greater technological ability, there is this panic, this fear. And there are no doubt a lot of realities contributing to that. They range from the physiological to the experiential and the historical traumatic episodes in history. Surely one of the factors that plays in to our being so prone to panic and anxiety is an increasing sense that we are alone. And it's an increasing sense that we are alone because by and large we actually are more alone. Sociologists will point out like, In the book Bowling Alone, that the kind of groups that used to so dominate our civic life are on the wane. Volunteerism's on the wane, uh, sort of middle associations between government and the family or the individual are on the wane. We tend to be members of fewer clubs and societies and groups and gatherings. We tend to do our own thing. We have to define ourselves, we have to make our own way. It'd be interesting to poll in here how many of you do or are hoping to do something that mom and dad have done vocationally. It would be interesting to poll how many of you live within 5, 10, 15, 20 miles of mom and dad and your family of origin. Is it any wonder, as we move so much, both geographically and vocationally, perhaps religiously and politically, that we feel alone? unmoored, that we are called to to find our own way. And one of the crucial realities of that is finding a purpose, finding a purpose, something that we're here for. If we're not in the town that our family's been in for generations, then it's likely not going to be contributing to that town. If we're not in the vocation that your family does, so-and-so's son of a carpenter, son of a carpenter, son of a carpenter, then it's probably not going to be carpentry. And so we increasingly feel this desire, not just to put food on the table, but to have a cause, not just to clock in at work and to have something that pays the bills, but to have purpose. And it's in the face of that, of that increasing fear and that palpable sense of aloneness, that we need to hear the language of predestination. Predestination's jarring language. There are different words that are used here. Verse 4. He, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or verse 5, In love He predestined us according to the purpose of His will. Or verse 11, Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. The Bible can use that language of election or of choosing or of predestining, but it's speaking of God determining our way, designing our path before we are around. It's speaking of God and His almightiness, having a plan, what's called a a purpose or a will for our lives. If we're honest, oftentimes our immediate reaction to that can be to feel like that cuts against our dignity, We can be a lot like that episode from the movie Toy Story, the first one, that crucial moment where Buzz Lightyear accidentally observes the commercial, and he realizes that he is not, in fact, the galactic hero. He's a toy. He's been designed to bring cheer to children, to Andy in particular. You can see him, his posture, his shoulders immediately hunching, his chest Falling down, you can see that his spirits are gone, deflated. And the language of predestination can do that to us if we're honest. We tend to think that it's a gut punch, It, it takes away our autonomy, our independence, our ability to choose our own way, to design our own path. And I think what we've got to get our minds around is that that is, in fact, what it's doing, and that Paul. The Bible and God want us to know that's a gift, that dignity and integrity aren't found in playing God, but in learning to lean on God, who in fact is in control, that human dignity, human goodness, joy and flourishing, happiness and blessedness don't come in being autonomous but they come from embracing the fact that we live on borrowed breath. That we need food and water each day. That you needed mom to push you into life. You need God who has chosen that you would exist. And that actually walking in a peaceful way, actually walking in a happy way, actually living in light of our design, not kicking up against it, is to embrace the fact that we live dependently, that we are creatures and not the Creator. Predestination doesn't just speak of our beginning, that God has long ago in a a land far, far away chosen that we would exist, but it speaks to our end, to our purpose. That the God who, who chose that we would be here, the God who decided not to be without us, but to be with us, Has chosen to give us a purpose. And so we read in verses five and six, He predestined us to the praise of His glorious grace. Or in verse twelve, so that we might be to the praise of His glory. Or in verse 14, speaks of the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We are made to praise. We are made to acclaim. We are made to draw attention to something, but not to ourselves, not to our own kingdom, not to our own competence, not to our own character, not to our own know-how, to the praise of His glory, His kingdom, His wonder. We are given a purpose. Now, Ephesians is going to describe how that purpose plays out in lots of ways, It's going to describe in chapter 5 how there's particular purpose for how spouses treat each other, for how parents and children treat each other, for how masters and slaves would treat each other, for how we treat those who are our neighbors, those who are non-Christians. It's going to describe how there's purpose for what we do with our body as sexual beings, what we do with our resources as persons who possess things. It's going to describe purpose in lots of ways, but before it gets into any of that particularity, before it gets into any of those details, it wants to signal this one thing, that whatever you're doing with respect to neighbors and non-Christians, to parents and to children, to husbands and to wives, to bodies and to money, you need to be doing it to the praise of His glory. That in and through all those other things, in and through all those other situations, in and through all those other challenges, this is the first matter. This is the primary concern. That He has made us. He has destined us. He has chosen us to live to this end, to this purpose. It's perhaps hard to imagine sometimes that in this situation or challenge, whatever it may be, God wants you to live to His glory. Maybe you are facing the death of a child. Maybe you're facing the loss of a job. In a situation out of control, not just in terms of your ability to to change things out there, but control in here, your ability to harness what seem to be emotions that just well up when you perhaps least expect it. Perhaps you're facing situations of remarkable triumph and success. Things are going so well that the kids, they're not winding up in jail. They just keep functioning okay, and they're growing and learning, and, and things are going happily in this season. Amen. Ah, amen. There you, <laughs> empty nester. There you go. Yeah. You know, maybe the stock just keeps going up or you keep getting promoted, and and things are just going well. It can be just as difficult in times where we are successful. In fact, sometimes it can be far harder in good times to believe that this is meant to be harnessed. This is meant to be directed to the praise of God's glory and God's name, not our own When we're in difficult times, we can struggle to believe that any glory and goodness will be found there. And when we're in times of happiness and success, of fullness and overflow of abundance, it can be difficult to believe that it's to to the praise of another's glory, not our own. And so it's not for nothing. It's not for nothing that Paul here doesn't just speak of how you were destined long ago To this end, at the end of all things. But he's also going to tell you these things. He's going to tell you that Jesus has been given and that his blood is the forgiveness of our sins. He's going to tell you that you have every spiritual blessing, verse 3. That you have riches, verse 7. That these are lavished on you, verse 8. That you have an inheritance yet to come, verse 14. He's going to promise you, maybe above all in verse 10, that as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. What Ephesians intends to give you is the imagination. The imagination to see that this triumph and that struggle are occasions of God uniting all things. It's easy to see how God unites a exuberant worship experience to glorify God. But what about at the graveside? What about when you're back in therapy having to confess again that it's worse than before, where it just hasn't changed? What about when you're having to confess sin and you're scared to death to say it in front of somebody? Can we speak of that as an occasion where God is uniting all things? Where heaven's glory is not distant and aloof, but it's it's palpably present here in earth's joys and struggles. Ephesians longs to give us lenses, eyes, imaginations, that we can see that connection. As we prepare to go to the table, as we prepare to receive still more from the powerful God who's on our side, I want to leave you with these words from the writer Annie Dillard. She means to jolt jolt us out of our dim participation in the Christian story. This is what she says. She says, On the whole, I don't find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry stats, Mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a morning. I pray that as we work through Ephesians, we would increasingly be able to say, and it might be said of each of us, that we aren't like children playing around with the power of God's presence, but that we're increasingly alert to the gravity and the glory of the fact that the Almighty God is committed to our cause. That long before us, He has had a plan for us, Long after us in his resurrecting power, he has a goal to which he's bringing us. And that at every step along the way, whether it's a seemingly heavenly moment or an earthly struggle, he is with us, he is active, he is providing. And that as we become alert and aware of that, we might step out boldly and with peace. Let's pray that he would do that in our hearts now. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder of our vital signs. It's so easy to to go about the day thinking of things that are urgent and obvious and to forget that which is most crucial, that we are made for you and that we will be restless until we find our rest in you. We thank you for your word that alerts us to that truth. We thank you for your word that reminds us of your promise that you'll be with us. And we pray that You would work in our hearts by Your Spirit now that we might cherish that Word, not kick against it. That we might delight in that reality, not be embittered by it. And that we might run to You this day and every day yet to come, not seeking to go it alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.